Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I, I can't say that. There is a vast disconnect, unfortunately, between what I claim to believe and how I live my life and how I live out my faith. And, in fact, I, this is a very difficult sermon to give as well because, well, you'll realize why it's hard to give. I humbly suggest that one of the most significant crises facing Christianity today is that there are very, very, very few Christians who can say this without and with any real authenticity. Of course, we're very good at telling people what to think and that they should think like us. Which perhaps explains why for many people being a Christian is simply about thinking the correct things and not about actually living out the correct things. So we're always carrying on for people to think this way, believe that way, listen to what I say. However, for St. Paul, Christianity was not simply about creedal observance and correct thinking. For St. Paul, it was ultimately about living the way Jesus Christ lived. St. Paul lived like Christ right down to his suffering. And out of his own profound imitation of Christ, he was confident he could say with pure authenticity, imitate me. And this was not some ego trip for Paul. Bailey helps us understand what this entire concept meant to the people of his time and place. Students of a rabbi, and also you need to know of, of any teacher or philosopher at that time, this is true of not just the Jewish rabbi, were expected to live with the rabbi. They could learn from him in two ways. His teaching provided one method of learning. Watching him live in observance of the law provided the other. How did he keep the Sabbath? What about ceremonial purity? Which foodstuffs did he subject to the tithe? Observing the rabbi's lifestyle was an indispensable part of the learning process. Paul would naturally assume this teaching method. And Witherington reminds us that imitation for Paul was not to seek his own advantage. It was for the many. You know, I read this. Students of a rabbi were expected to live with the rabbi. They could learn from him in two ways. That's how the disciples learned from Jesus. Sure, they listened to him talk all the time, but they watched him live for three and a half years. I wonder, I really wonder, how many people really would go to church and would be Christians if we lived with our teachers? I have two kids at home that are very good at reminding me of my own failures. And what would the world look like if the majority of Christians could say that if two billion people live like Christ, I'm going to guess the world looks a bit different. I'm going to guess. So, Paul has just concluded his final homily, Paul, Apollo, Cephas. It is about Christ. We spent a few weeks on that homily. And that's, he was wrapping up his first essay that became the first part of this letter to the Corinthians. And now he begins what Bailey calls a concluding general admonition and personal appeal. That's what Johanna just read for us. 
And it's somewhat easy when you're reading through Corinthians to catch this shift here. Because he's been writing in this very brilliant and purposeful composition, this essay that we have been seeing how amazing his writing style is. And now all of a sudden we get to some language that is not composed quite as brilliantly. And it is filled with passion and angst and sarcasm and very raw human emotion and an accounting of what it means to be a genuine imitator of Jesus Christ. So Paul starts this this way. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. This is pure irony. And the original readers were meant to hear the biting sarcasm in it. Remember, many of the Corinthians thought they had arrived. The Corinthian believers thought they had arrived. We've talked about this. They thought their gifts of the Spirit, of which they had many, and they thought their knowledge of the faith signified they had arrived. They did not understand the now and yet to come tension of Christianity. Redemption, restoration, receiving the Spirit is a now event in one sense. But the fullness of it is a yet-to-come event in another sense. Paul's writings are full of this tension. Now, yet-to-come. Jesus Christ's own teachings were full of this tension. And so as Witherington points out, these Corinthians that were so convinced they had everything already were a certified mess because of it. In Corinth, he says, a little wisdom proved to be a dangerous thing, leading to arrogance, elitism, rivalries, and faction. See why I call 1 Corinthians a letter to the Americans? And Fee writes, for these Corinthian believers, spirituality means to, the, to have been transported to a whole new sphere of existence where they are above the earthly and especially fleshly existence of others. These are some of the believers in Corinth that Paul is writing about. So Paul, who has now been up to now, who has been up to now, excuse me, pretty gentle with these arrogant believers, takes them to task. And his irony is filled with eschatological metaphors. Basically, what Paul is saying here is, oh, the kingdom has arrived. And you are ruling over it because you are so filled and rich with spiritual wisdom. See, Paul knows the kingdom has come. He was so convinced of Christ's death and resurrection that ushered in that kingdom. But Paul also knows it has not yet fully come. And so that's where this wistful angst comes in as he ends this initial sarcastic attack. You hear this? How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. In other words, if it were true the kingdom had come fully, we'd all be enjoying it. And then it seems Paul becomes incredibly somber. He must have I, I imagine him writing this line, and then it just 
it caught him. And then you hear the somberness comes in as he's thinking about how the fullness of the kingdom is so far off and the imitation of Christ that remains is no easy thing. And so he writes this, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. See, here's what ha- would happen. Rome, Rome's military would go out and they would have uh, an incredible military victory. And to celebrate these military victories, they would have parades through Rome. And the generals would be in the chariots as they come through the city streets of Rome. And then there'd be some priests and nobles behind them. And then the soldiers who actually did the fighting. And then they'd have all their booty, all the plunder of the city that they had conquered, the gold and and all that. Then at the end would be the captives in chains. And when the parade came to the end, those captives in chains would be sacrificed to the Roman gods. Bailey captures well, I think, Paul's emotions here while he's writing this. Paul wonders if God has formed such a parade and has placed the apostles at the end under the sentence of death. What is amazing about this parable of the Roman triumph is its similarity to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was also in a Roman grave that ended with his death in a public place. Bailey also suggests, and I agree with him, that this is Paul's own cry of dereliction, just like the Christ cry, my God, my God, why? Why? Like Jesus, Paul is perhaps not expressing his studied conclusions, but rather his deepest feelings. Just like how beautiful Dave was just sharing his deepest feelings with us this morning. See, Paul wrote to the Philippians, I want to know Christ, yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The imitation of Christ for Paul was not some theoretical possibility. Nor was it mere wishful thinking meant to be replaced by creedal observance. For Paul, this was the only path available to Christians, and it did not end this side of Calvary. It ended on the other side. And because he does not want his readers to miss the very challenging application of what he has just said about being the spectacle of men condemned to die, he returns to irony and with a piercing challenge that the Corinthians would not have missed. And I suggest we should not miss. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. The apostles are fools, they're weak, and they're dishonored. All the things the arrogant believers in Corinth hate. Hate. Which is why they don't think Paul's an apostle. 
Fee captures the thrust of Paul's intent here perfectly. The position in which God has placed the apostles at the end of the procession as those condemned to die in the arena is the ultimate humiliation of the dishonor. The Corinthians, on the other hand, would be among those in the procession or the crowd, the honored, who would watch the dishonored go to their deaths. But Paul is dishonored only before the world, who will also dishonor Christ, which again puts the Corinthians in a position of jeopardy. Their theology of glory must finally yield to that which alone is Christian, the theology of the cross. Paul then abandons his irony. And he composes a brilliant picture of what his life looks like as an authentic imitator of Christ. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our own hands. By the way, the reason we work with our own hands is in the midst of all this other things that look like horror is because for a religious teacher, a philosopher in those days, they wouldn't have done it. They would have either begged for money or they would have had a benefactor relationship with someone rich in Corinth. Paul refused that. He rejected the culture of his day because the kingdom of God is a different culture. So he worked with his hands. And in our world, it would almost be a little different because we take great pride in America of working with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Be again. In contrast to the Corinthians who are filled, rich, ruling, wise, powerful, honored, he and his fellow apostles look far more like their Lord, who fits well in the picture of Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Not a pretty picture. But with powerful imagery, this catalog carries the theme of the folly of God as wiser than merely human wisdom to a fitting. So, do we really want to imitate Paul? I mean, honest. Be honest. It's okay. I'm honest. I don't want to imitate Paul. It becomes clear, doesn't it, why Christianity shifted away from imitating Christ, from following Christ, to a simpler intellectual acceptance of theological truth and confessed faith in a correct doctrine. Doesn't it make sense? When you, re- when you really read Paul, and when you really read the gospel, and Jesus always talking about, hey, follow me. It makes sense. And it didn't start with us. It started 
half a century after Christ was gone. The Corinthians were already totally into the intellectual side of this thing. And making sure you believe the right way. That's all you need to do. This is not to say truth is not important. Of course it is. We have to first agree Jesus is the way before we start following him, I suppose. The issue is in the way we tend to stop at the agreement stage and never keep following. See, because when we stop at the agreement stage and never keep following, it allows us to do these things we love to do. It allows us to hate those who revile us and not bless them as Paul did. It allows us to fight back against persecution, not endure. It allows us to respond with bitterness to slander. Something I've been dealing a lot with lately. It allows us to not make peace. It allows us to save ourselves, not the world. And maybe it is that last bit we have trouble grasping. Saving the world. It has for so long been about our own salvation. We almost, without realizing it, have created a selfish religion out of the most unselfish gospel ever preached. Ever preached. But Paul can help us here. Paul does not have a messianic complex as he sometimes accuses of. He genuinely believes we are to live like Jesus Christ. And that our own sufferings are the very stuff of Christ's suffering. He wrote this in his second letter. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. William Moore and James Walter shed some light on this for us. Paul knew what physical deprivation meant. His reward was often insult, persecution, and slander. But Paul responded according to the admonition aimed at peace of Jesus. The end result of all this was that the dirt scoured from the world was poured upon him and his apostolic co-laborers. They then acted as cleansing agents, taking to themselves hate, malice, and bitterness, and by absorbing this without violence or vengeful response, they took away those evils. Thus, in a particular way, they were carrying on the work of Christ. Wow, do I love that. This, this has saved me this week. Some of you know what I have been going through. This legitimately has saved me. This week I prayed this. And instead of reacting violently and hateful to things that were happening to me, 
I captured a glimpse of what the Paschal Mystery is all about. If you take that on and you don't react, you have taken it out of the It's so beautiful. You stop. You stop the cycle. And then Witherington comments further. When Paul speaks of imitating Christ, he means that he models himself on the narrative pattern of Christ's whole career of self-sacrificial giving, as the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 shows. At times, imitating Christ means being conformed to the pattern of Christ's death in one's life events while one tries to serve Christ. What Witherington is saying is this. We have no control over the horrors that get visited upon us. Many things get visited upon us beyond our control. Cancer, death, horrible things. And what Paul is saying, what Witherington is saying, is this. When those things happen, understand it as part of Christ's own suffering. It will help. It will help. Understand it as part of that Paschal mystery. At other times, imitation is Paul's conscious effort to act and live humbly. Deliberately stepping down the ladder of social status so that he might relate to and help all, even slaves. Imitation for Paul is both an event and a choice. Both being conformed to Christ's image through the sufferings that the world visits upon us and choosing to conform. And remember, when Paul says, imitate me, he is imitating Christ even in that admonition. In John 20, there is a verse that we always race over on Easter morning because we're afraid of the implications. And when Jesus had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side scars that he had just endured through crucifixion. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We don't stay on that verse long on Easter. He's showing them the scars of his crucifixion that he received because the Father sent him to save the world. And he says to the disciples and to us, So send I you. How did we miss that? So, in our real world, in our real life, How do we do this? How do we understand Paul's imitation? Imitate? I don't know. I don't know. You see why this was such a hard teaching to do? I don't know. 
but I'm convinced this is what we're supposed to be focused on. And all of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of theological debating, doctrinal hair splitting, making sure we believe the right thing, I think has been the greatest thing Satan has ever done. Ever. Ever. All Jesus has ever wanted is for us to follow him. We change that whole story. Sophie asked, how does one avoid either guilt on the one hand because we're not like that or a martyr complex on the other because we love to suffer and do it so well? How? I don't know. But Fee has two observations. We need to become more aware of the Corinthian side of this text than we tend to. That is, we try desperately to identify with Paul when in fact we are probably much more like the Corinthians than any of us dare admit. We are rich, well-filled, etc. And all too often that blinds us to our true and desperate. As Barrett notes, between Paul's view and the Corinthian view of Christianity, there can be little done which conception corresponds more closely to the Lord's command if anyone wishes to follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow and two, he writes, perhaps if we were more truly like our Lord, standing more in opposition to the status quo with its worldly wisdom, and more often in favor of God's justice, we too would know more about what it means to be the scum in the eyes of the world's beautiful and powerful people. In any case, we need to recapture Paul's eschatological perspective so that nothing, good, bad, or indifferent, tyrannizes us anymore. The tyranny of thinking we don't need to imitate Christ needs to end. We need to end that tyranny. Imitate me. Perhaps if we were to reimagine how this can save the world. Save our neighbors. Save our loved ones. Then one day, we will too be able to say it with profound authenticity.